everyone. This is Ken Drew from the show Taboo Topic. I am the host. And this is my friend Ryan from Between the Liars. That way. <laughs> You'll <laughs> get it eventually. <laughs> yep. <laughs> from the, for another edition of Blueprint. <laughs> Anyways. Uh, sorry Audio will that. never know that you messed that up. <laughs> okay. Anyways. Uh, <laughs> the live part. Everyone will see on live TV anyway <laughs> that I did that. So anyways, uh, welcome to another edition of Blueprint. And uh, today we're going to be talking about the judicial branch. Uh, really, today's conversation, actually even the next couple of weeks, I would say it's going to be pretty breezy, I would say, Ryan, just because of the fact that you and I agree for the most part uh, to leave the judicial branch alone. So this is really more for people who want a better argument or better understanding why someone like ourselves uh, would probably prefer to leave the judicial branch as is. With that said, there's a lot of controversy concerning the judicial branch, and there's also a lot of proposals to change uh, dramatically how a Supreme Court system functions. But um, really quickly, Ryan, if you want to go ahead and give your plugins for your show real quick, if yeah. you don't mind. Would love to. Uh, so you can check out Between the Liars. We've got multiple types of segments. We've got the Bill Me segments with me, where I find and read current legislation and we discuss it. I give you a couple of things to look out for so you know what your representatives are doing uh, so that you don't have to track that down. And then on uh, that's on Tuesdays live, 7 p.m. And then Thursdays, 7 p.m., usually, schedule permitting. Uh, that's where Marcelo and Josh and I and any guests that we might have, we come on, we have a debate about a current issue, and we discuss it. So, yeah, join us for those two, and then, obviously, if you want to hear this segment, uh, our podcast version, that drops Fridays. Uh, audio only. Well, real quickly, folks, also, speaking of plugins and everything like that, please hit the like button, hit the subscribe button if you haven't done it already. Hit the notification bell, even though we all get annoyed with notifications anyway, so you're probably not going to do it, but I'm going to go ahead and ask you to do it for me anyway. For us, I should say, if you're on Ryan's show, please like my channel and subscribe. If you're on my, if you're my audience, go to Ryan's channel, subscribe to his channel. Also, for my portion anyway, if you're on Rumble, hit the Rumble button, share this with your friends and family members as well. Ryan. How was your day? Before we get started, how was your day? How's your week been so far? Uh, it's, it's been good. The semester is in full swing. I just had my first round of speeches with my students, and so <laughs> they didn't enjoy that as much, but uh, we, we had a good time. Uh, <laughs> and Any then, stories that stood out? Not really. Um, just uh, These are just introductory speeches, so it's pretty nice okay. because I just learn a lot about my students, and I think it really humanizes them, and it's, in theory, the easiest speech for them to give because the topic is on themselves, right? And what I tell them is, you're the expert on this, so, you know, we're just here to listen. So that, that, I think that, uh, I don't know, I try to make it as quick and painless as I possibly can. Some people still don't like speeches, and it's not their cup of tea. I understand. So if <laughs> because it's a required course, I really try to help them through as much as I can. And then for the super nerds, uh, the speech and debate <laughs> speech and debate team, uh, that would be the super nerds. I am one of the super nerds. Uh, we are gearing up for a tournament. Uh, well, we're in September basically now. Uh, by the time this you know is going live, it's going to be September. So uh, we got a tournament about the middle, like third week, second week of September. So I'm trying to whip them into shape for that, so they're as prepared as possible. So. Yeah, it's, it's consumed a lot of my time. Are you playing the Rocky Balboa music in this preparation? Like, dun 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 Absolutely, dun. yep. <laughs> we do a huge pep rally, right? They all just, like, burst out and, let's do a Bigger pep rally than football players. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, oh, no they can't tear the paper. They're not athletic. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> oh, wow. I'm it's kidding. Like, Spongebob, like, Spongebob, like, Spongebob, like, Spongebob, like, Oh my god! Disrespect to the nerds out there. How how was your week though, Ken? <laughs> it's going good so far. I uh, yeah, this is like my second week back from uh, summer break and everything like that. So I have one in-person class this semester again, and that's my Spanish class. So nice. Pr brushing up on my Spanish finally, and it's actual. It's an actual class where students, classmates, were forced to interact with each other as well. Nice. So, uh, it's actually nice, and I said this in the last episode of Taboo Topic Live concerning month, in the month of review, but uh, it's just different when you get, get to actually interact in person and versus a Zoom call because in Zoom call, you can't really interact with the classmates. So uh, pretty much it's a one-way conversation between you and the professor, and that's pretty much it. So there can't be sidebar conversations or 
there's gonna be, there's also moments in the classroom that happens you just can't replace or replicate in a Zoom meeting if you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, and absolutely. So, yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> so uh, it's been fun interacting with some of my new classmates. Uh, I think I'm the second oldest guy there, though. I met someone who's 32 years old, so she's older than me. But I'm the only her and I are pretty much the only millennials in our classroom right now. <laughs> so, oh, really? Yeah, everyone's like <laughs> jumping between uh, 21 and 18. So, nice. uh, yeah, so it's also cool to see different perspectives. And I've learned some new things about this new generation. Like, I don't know if anyone, one of y'all actually knows this new social media platform called uh, Keep It Real or Real Me, something like that. Do you know what that is, Ryan? No, TikTok was the latest I heard of. So, it's like, well, they say it's different than Instagram. It's supposed to be like less fake, whatever. Uh, than Instagram, supposedly, but I think it's a glorified version of Instagram. So this is R-E-A-L me, not R-E-E-L? Because I was thinking like yeah. Instagram real, you know? Like, yeah, like, like R-E-A-L. <laughs> yeah, like real, uh, like keep it real. Okay. I think it's actually keep it real, now that I think about it. But, okay, interesting. Uh, <laughs> huh. They post photos and everything like that where it's more realistic, supposedly, but again, to me it sounds like glorified Instagram. Oh, but, well, what's the difference between that and Snapchat then? Because, like, to me, it was always, like, Snapchat's, like, you know, the people I'm closer to that, like, it's going to be, you know, more unfiltered me. Instagram is going to be a little bit more filtered, literally sometimes. I don't know. At this point, we, sound, <laughs> we just sound like two old guys now. I, okay. <laughs> it, we're, we're deviating. But, yeah, come back to me with that uh, when you find out more about it in your class. I'm interested because I got to keep up with my students, you know. As a matter of fact, you homework sign up for you, Ryan. Okay. Ask, your ask your students, like, what the heck is that? I'll so. ask them. I'll ask them. <laughs> <laughs> anyways, not, to get back on track, anyways, uh, folks, like I said, we're going to talk about the judicial branch today. And uh, Ryan, I'll, if you wouldn't mind, go ahead and give the audience a quick overview of what we actually discussed in the last month with Congress, what we agreed on. Yep. As far, at least as a, or at least as a first final draft of the ratification of Congress for the changes. Right. So remember, we talked about lobbying. Um, the ultimatum we kind of gave is: if you start as a lobbyist, you cannot run for public office in the future. And we're trying to prevent the revolving door. That was your original proposal. Uh, political office is no longer allowed to lobby. If a company loses a lawsuit, then you lose your rights to lobby on behalf of that uh, for 10 years. And we were saying the majority gets to decide. I feel like we backed off of that a little bit, though, and I think this is my original. I was going to say, I think we we actually reached an impasse on that one. Yeah, because um, I think that we were a little worried about the infringement of free speech. And then yeah. we also said, uh, basically, we need to circle back and set standards for lawsuits. So, like, who can bring lawsuits? Uh, concepts mm -hmm. like, you know, standing and things like that might want to be um, addressed. Just because, you know, if if you're pissed off at me, Ken, and you disagree with me, then and then I lose that lawsuit, maybe on even legitimate grounds, maybe not, uh, depending mm -hmm. on how the judicial activism, which we might talk a little bit about today, winds up affecting that. Then, you know, we, we might see stuff being like, I don't know, I guess activating us. I think that was one of our concerns. <laughs> uh, we basically yeah. said that uh, you need to show that they broke the social contract if we were really going to go through with that. Uh, and we also, and I think we also agreed that Government and government can create can lawsuit against each other. So right, um, and we were saying that's why that, we did agree part. Yes, and we also wanted to heavily limit the government ability to bring a lawsuit. But like you said, they could do it against each other. So like they couldn't just bring it against like a private corporation because the governments then are using taxpayer dollars to like. Uh, uh, you know, go against things that they might disagree with. Uh, and then we said that the states could decide for the state legislator, uh, but we wanted a blanket ban on all federal elected and appointed officials from like kind of revolving door, I think. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we agreed on a revolving door at least. It was the lawsuit and the corporations aspect that we kind of like yep. had some. We decided to go to Jim Pisaki and circle back to that later on. We go through the final ratification process of the three branches of government. Yep. Um, but with that said, anything else you want to add real quick? I was just kind of thinking again, going back to that, um, you know, political office is no longer allowed to lobby. Like, I, I, I get it. I think that we're still going to see political strategies, you know, because like, I feel like that's what we're trying to cut down on. 
but politicians are slimy in general. It's very hard to nail them down. It's very hard. It's like, you know, trying to nail down water. Like it just kind of <laughs> like goes around it. So I feel like anything we do, there's going to be ways to circumvent it. There's going to be fake ways to do things, whether it be the term limits or you know, any of it. So I feel like we're just trying to shoot for like an improvement, right? Like, would you agree with that statement that we're just trying yeah. to, uh, we're not claiming we're going to make this perfect. Uh, if this were to come out, you know, and actually be ratified, let's say, which is not gonna, but like if something like it would, <laughs> we'd see the issues with it then too. And and also politics shift over time. So we're really just, you know, trying to find a way to, to better it. So I wanted to remind people of that as we're trying to, to come up with stuff. Sure. And we might even compromise on things like big picture. I might be like, you know what, uh, to get, you know, let's say I've got something with the pre presidential thing I want to limit and you want to limit this. Like maybe I do some give and take, you know, something like that. Yeah, and if you actually folks have started from the very beginning, anyway, when we first started doing this series, the original proposals that I had, they seem they look very different now than our final ratification process right now, anyway, with Congress, um, because yes. like because there's just a lot of nuance that that we just don't think about. We're just thinking about ourselves when you put or when you put two people in a room, or imagine a hundred people like the Convention of States yep. back in 1787. There's going to be a lot of other nuances and points that. The individual may not think for themselves, but someone else is going to bring it up and it's going to be, you know what, that's a good point. Um, <laughs> and then you have to come up with a decision, come, come, come to reach some kind of consensus as far as like what's the appropriate course of action yep. to move forward. And one thing that Ryan and I just have been discussing as well is at the time of the ratification process during the Convention of States, or not Convention of States, Constitutional Convention, excuse me, we're trying to do that right now, but the Constitutional Convention at the time was some of the ratification processes that they may have not overlooked at the time, it, may, it probably passed because it made sense for the time period that they were in. And for the changes that we're proposing, it makes sense for the time period that we were in, where maybe back in 1787, probably wouldn't make sense at the time. So uh, something to keep in mind as well. So like Ryan said, uh, imagine hypothetically, this is not real, obviously, we're just pretending at this point, but um, imagine if this were to become an actual ratification process and, you know, what may be relevant today will, won't be relevant 20 years down the road and or even 50 years down the road. And then there's going to be other people that will look at our decision and go, well, what the heck were they thinking? <laughs> but yeah, Or they'll think it stands the test of time. It could go one of two ways. It could go one of two ways. So this is one of those situations like the judicial branch where we have to ask ourselves, has it actually stood against the test of time or are there changes that need to be made? Now, we're just going to give you a foreshadow right off the bat that Ryan and I were on the same page when we say it's pretty much stand against the test of time for the most part, I would say. Um, there really isn't many major changes. I don't have any major quarrels with the Supreme Court uh -uh. in particular or federal court. Do you have any quarrels? No, and, and I think that like just kind of laying a basic groundwork here, I think it's important to lay out like why I don't. And it's because I understand right now the, the purpose of the judicial branch is really to rule whether things are constitutional or unconstitutional. It's not to be passing legislation through interpretation. Uh, at least that's the, the interpretation of the constitutional duties that I understand and agree with. So because I agree with that purpose, I turn to Congress when I don't see things being passed that I would like to be passed. I don't look at the, uh, the, this branch and say, well, why aren't you, why aren't you just, you know, tweaking this or, or what have you? So that, that's why I don't have an issue with the way that it's run. I see. And for me, the position that I'm coming from is really uh, change for the sake of change is not always a good thing or healthy for that matter. I agree. And even though there may be some flaws with the current system we have with, with, when it comes to these judicial branch and life appointments and uh, stuff of that nature, it doesn't mean that it's going to be flawless, but it minimizes the corruption the best, at least, out of all the other options, which all the other options are really popular that Ryan and I are going to try to dismantle. But <laughs> yep. Which one do you uh, want to start with? Well, actually, I wanted to go ahead and... Uh, really quickly go ahead also look into some of the points from the founding fathers made at the time so pe people can understand like why they decided to go ahead and do a life appointment and then we'll go into the actual points and we'll start off with the the whole debacle with unelected judges 
So <laughs> we'll look into that for a second. But let's go ahead and look into the founding fathers, uh, per, at least from Alexander Hamilton's perspective, as far as why they decided to have a life appointment instead of like an election or term limits, whatever, right? And we also have to keep in mind at the time that they were coming from Great Britain and Great Britain had some corruption in the court where they're basically ruling to gain favor with the king or the British crown. So they want to avoid scenario like that. Um, so fast forward to the convention, uh, they had to figure out how we can, how they can best minimize conflict of interest more or less. And that's really the whole purpose is they wanted to create an independent branch where it would rule based strictly on what it, that would interpret the law and its application from the constitution itself. So as expressed by Alexander Hamilton, he expressed, should I do an accent again, Ron, for entertainment purposes? I think I will. It's live. Why not? All right. <clears throat> According to the plan of the convention, all judges who may be appointed by the United States are to hold their offices during good behavior, which is conformable to the most approved of state constitutions. It's priority. Yeah, prior, priority? Anyways. Having been drawn into question by the adversaries of that plan is a no light symptom of the range for objection which disorders the, their imagination and judgments. The standard of good behavior for the continuance of, in office, the judicial magistracy, is certainly one of the most valuable of the modern improvements in the practice of government. It is best expedient which can be devised in any government to secure a steady, upright, and impartial administration of the law. This independence of judges is equally requisite to guard the Constitution and the rights of individuals from the effects of those ill humors which the art of designing men or the influence of a particular conjectures sometimes disseminate among the people themselves, and which, though they speedily give to better information and deliberate reflection, have a tendency, in the meantime, to occasion dangerous innovations in the government and serious oppression, or the minor party in the community. So, that is Alexander Hamilton. I want to give myself props real quick for 10 out of 10 acting skills-wise. Do I know how Alexander Hamilton sounded? Absolutely not. But, anyways, now you have a visual of <laughs> what uh, was stated. Uh, you have something to say, Ryde? I was going to say, we know what he sounds like. He sounds like Lin-Manuel Miranda, but, you know. Does he? Oh, I was just teasing, because <laughs> uh, he embodied uh, him. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So with that said, folks, there is something that people should know. So we're going to get into the uh, concept of unelected judges and the popularity with actually the idea of having an election of some sort when it comes to the Supreme Court justice. And it's actually practiced in some states. So let me go ahead and break down the types of elections that we have here in the United States and different states. So we have a hybrid version where the executive branch is able to appoint a seat. However, after a certain period of time, the length of the term, voters simply vote a yes or no on the ballot regarding whether the judge should remain on the bench. This retention election system is practiced in 17 states. And then competitive election, which is exactly how it sounds. Lawyers who desire a seat on the bench campaign and get directly elected by the people. And that is practiced in 23 states. The rest of the states uh, is the traditional life appointed, which is 11. So, Ryan. Based on what you understand, should the people have a direct voice for those who serve on the bench of the highest court or any court for that matter? For the Supreme Court? No, um, not, not in a direct appointment. So you got to remember, and, and this, is, this is my reasoning for that statement, the purpose of the president nominating and then the Senate appointing was that you were supposed or uh, confirming, excuse me, the president appoints, Senate confirms. The reason for that is to avoid the populist campaign for votes. And you're still involved in that because you voted directly for the president. Well, you voted for the Electoral College, right? You, you voted right. for the president and you voted for the senators. And especially right now, right, when it's a direct populist vote for the senators, you should be thinking about, you know, where is your senator going to vote? Which which side? How would they vote for Senate confirmation hearings or for for the, the Supreme Court? Mm -hmm. And we are involved in, in that capacity. But the purpose of of that setup 
was so that they're not running on a populist campaign because they're supposed to be nonpartisan and they're supposed to uphold the constitution like that that's that's their one duty right is is make sure right. the constitution is upheld make sure that the rights of the people guaranteed by the constitution are not infringed upon that's their job mm -hmm. that's it so uh running for a populist vote is not supposed to do that because in theory that doesn't lend to to that end mm-hmm so what would you say if someone were to come up to you and say well what about a retention election then where it's still they're still appointed but the populace could still vote whether or not they should remain after a certain amount of time what if someone came to you and said let how's that how come that's not a fair compromise Ab absolutely not um because again the the purpose of the supreme court is to uphold the constitution they're not supposed to be beholden to the people which is why right. this is the one branch in the government where you do not vote for them and you you certainly wouldn't get the vote for a retention honestly i would be more willing to compromise for an, an initial vote than i would be for a retention vote because then you have justices who will be just like our senators, what can I do to stay in power? They won't be thinking, is this constitutional? Now, I would I would argue that um, a good chunk of the justices don't vote constitutionally. They vote based off of what they think they would like to see done. And we'll get mm -hmm. to that later. But <laughs> I don't want the the justices to make decisions based off of whether or not they think they'll get to remain in power. I want their power secured so that they, they vote. Um, and, and I'm again, I'm only throwing my weight behind people who are upholding the Constitution to remain in power because there is an impeachment process um, if they are egregious. I couldn't tell you what it is, but I'm not <laughs> saying that they should reign over us like kings, queens, you know, like, not, I'm not saying that. So so don't don't get it twisted. Uh <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying that they should not be beholden to a populist vote partway through, which then pressures them to vote in specific ways that they think will be more favorable and not in the way that they think is constitutional. I mean, I would agree with you, everything you just said, because at the end of the day, if you have an election of some sort, whether it's the competitive or the retention election, you risk the chance judges basically ruling for political points at that point, because they're trying to keep a job at that point. So how do you know for sure that they're not ruling uh, to gain your favor versus actually what's actually ingrained in the Constitution or not. Yep. So the question I posed in my Substack article anyway was, is this a risk worth taking if you want to make this change? And granted, when there's an error in the Supreme Court justice, there's been cases where they have gotten it wrong before. There's Jim Crow. Uh, Roe v. Wade is another one example. It's another example. And it took generations. And so I can see the appeal, I would say, as far as the idea of having maybe at least a retention election. So uh, maybe there'd be a quicker way to at least or speed up or expedite the process to uh, fix an error in the system, per se. But at the same time, that's where Congress is there for as far as uh, or just the Constitution itself, actually, as far as amending the Constitution to fix those errors. Or you can get get active, uh, get a group of people, become activists, if you will, because that's pretty much what happened with, that's how Jim Crow ended, like a civil rights movement, right? And it was a bunch of people, a bunch of civil rights activists who just went to use the system to their advantage and eventually got to the Supreme Court and they played the long game and the Supreme Court decided that Jim Crow was uh, wrongly ruled, it was a mistake, and same thing with Jim Crow. It took about 50, 60 years to overturn Roe v. Wade because it was a bad because honestly, I mean the way our court system works, it takes a long time to get things done, but it's actually kind of part of, the, it's also kind of the beauty of it as well because you don't want drastic change you don't want to play essentially a game of ping pong where uh, one moment you have a you have one set of justices who will rule one way and then like another 10 years it goes back to the other uh, situations, it goes back and forth and it just gets it becomes like a kangaroo court at that point, if you ask me. I don't know, but um, that's really like my basis as to why I would not even bother. I wouldn't, even, to be honest, I wouldn't be open to any compromise when it comes to that. So I think it's like one of those branches where I'm like, nah, we need to leave the Supreme Court justice system as is uh, when it comes to at least the portion of retention election, um, the portion of competitive election. Now, if states want to continue doing that, 
make it their making their own decisions, fine. That's your decision. If you want to mess up, I personally would not vote in favor of like any sort of election in my state. If I had the choice, if I was on the ballot box, um, if I could, I would, you know, vote in favor of like life appointments in my state. But if the people want to, you know, pretty much put themselves in a pit hole like that, that's on them in their state at that point. Uh, so it's, but it's like you said, as far as the federal level, leave that alone. But anything you want to add? I would agree with you that the states can kind of keep it as is. They kind of have their own autonomy to decide how they want their Supreme Court, the state Supreme Court set up. Uh, but yeah, federal needs to remain the same for that reason. And and I would challenge anyone who has an issue um, with the the life appointments or with, you know, kind of their one job not to be activists, but to interpret the Constitution. Uh, I, I would challenge you to think, you know, what what is what what is the job of Congress if, you know, the Supreme Court is just going to rule. Like, I feel like the purpose of having three distinct branches is so that they balance each other out and so that they all have different duties. Now, there is overlap in what they do, but the Supreme Court has their one express duty and the uh, presidency has their duty and the, you know, and then same for Congress. So it's supposed to be different. And I think that the activism that is favored when it comes to the Supreme Court is basically either... Congress isn't being held accountable and doing what we put them in there to do, or we don't have the majority that we need, whether it be a simple majority or a filibuster-proof majority, to get this done. So this is our way of cramming it down <laughs> when we have the majority that we want. And like you were talking about with Roe v. Wade with that decision, the justices, including RBG, said this is not what we should be doing, but it's a good end in our opinion, so we're going to go ahead and do it anyway. And the people who were in favor of that, uh, I know very few people who were in favor of Roe v. Wade who think that it was a good, like, law um as far as like or a law interpretation the, the, right it was yeah. it's not that they thought it was constitutional per se but they agreed with the decision that was made and i think that you know when the problem i have with that is once we start stepping to the side like that we allow the courts to just kind of do whatever and then you do have a little bit more like executive order type things being done instead mm -hmm. of them you know just interpreting is this constitutional or is it not? That's supposed to be their standard. So, but I, I think I'm, <laughs> I can get off my soapbox now. But that's that's well, really why I'm standing still with where it's at. Well, I would also challenge those who may have an issue with life appointments as well. I would ask you, why is that? Like, what is the reason why you feel that's you know feel some type of way about life appointments? Is it because you're a liberal and now there's a majority of conservative justices now, which. Really, let's also real, make a quick distinction between conservative versus liberal justices in the judicial branch aspect. It's not the same thing as a congressional or presidential uh, conservative versus liberal. Uh, conservative and liberal in the judicial branch are completely different. Have completely different meanings. So, a conservative is basically is really an originalist, which they interpret the Constitution and they look into the original intent of the founding fathers when they ratified the Constitution. And then they take the law and they look at the Constitution and then they see how that fits. Whereas a liberal justice, those are the ones that consider the Constitution as a living document where they can go ahead and adjust the Constitution based on the time of the day because it's a living document. So that's why you'll have some Supreme Court just some Supreme Court rulings like Roe v. Wade that was based on the premise it's a living document. And so... This fit, this right, even though it's not explicit in the Constitution, it fits with our times. So let's go gets into the whole like legislating, legislating from the judicial branch. Um, so I would challenge the individual who has an issue with life appointments as far as like, is that the reason why you have an issue with life appointments? And this also goes for conservatives as well, because for a while, when it wasn't us in this majority in the Supreme Court bench, it also was popular with the idea of election or retention election as well, as far as like, what can we do to remove these justices out? Is, was it because of the simple fact that the majority were liberal justices, justices at the time? Or do you honestly believe this will best minimize the corruption? And as, if you think it was the best, if you come up with the conclusion, you land in the position where it's based on the frustration or discontentment with the majority where it's at, then your conclusion is subjective, not objective at that point. And, if, and it's, ah, go ahead. 
I was going to say, if you if you say that it's because of the corruption, I'd like to ask you, what is the corruption? Because is the corruption, because to me, I would define the corruption as if you don't interpret the Constitution the way that it was written to be interpreted. And if you have a problem with the way that it's interpreted, then we amend it. Like, that's what I would say is a corrupt a corrupt justice or a corrupt issue there. I know people who say it's corrupt because they're doing things that they disagree with. So, mm-hmm. you know, like it's a very subjective term. So I would also, and this goes for us as well, right? I'm not just saying for the audience, like for, <laughs> for you and for me, ask yourself, you know, what what is corruption? Like, what are you trying to minimize? Because really, um, I find that it continues to boil back down to, well, well they do what I disagree with. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and for me, when I say they're doing what I disagree with, it's the judicial activism. They say, well, I want this done, whether it be Obamacare, right, where uh, Roberts did the job of Congress, because if you don't know this, uh, the, the very abbreviated ber- version of what happened with Obamacare originally was they were going to make it a tax to where they said the way it was written was you would be taxed to not be enrolled in Obamacare. And the court said you can't tax someone for not doing something. You can only tax someone for doing something, right? Like you can put a tax on alcohol. You can put a tax on firearms. You can put a tax on anything. You can't put a tax on not doing anything. So, but what Roberts did was he rewrote essentially what they were proposing in the law and then said, well, this is, we won't strike this down. That's not their job. I would say that's corrupt. Justice Roberts did an egregious thing because he stepped outside his judicial scope from mm-hmm. what I would say their duties are. Now, there were people who were like, hey, the ends justify the means or, you know, like anything along those lines. And that's fine. And then they'll agree with it. So then my question is, are you consistent in that application? Because anytime a conservative or a liberal justice steps outside those confines, I will say that is that is wrong. I don't care whether, and I've even said, I agree with the outcome of X decision, but I disagree with the court stepping outside of this. This should, should have been, you know, uh, usually it's a congressional issue, right? So that is right. how I try to be consistent. Are you doing the same? I would I would challenge you to ask yourself that. And if not, then why? Uh, because, you know, I mean, I think that's important because that really boils down to the root of like, why do you vote the way that you do in many instances, right? Because you vote off of values. You put people in theory, if you know, <laughs> if you're if you're doing your due diligence, you should be putting people right. in office who agree with or, you know, who agree with and will represent you well. And so oftentimes it's good to even ask these questions of yourself. You know, why, why do I think that? Is this justice, you know, or is, you know, the people that I appoint who will then appoint justices, are they upholding my values? And I think as you and I go through the judicial branch and kind of go through like these proposals that more progressives come up with or some conservatives get on board with, when you start digging beneath the surface, you'll start to see like the amount of problems that actually create versus a life appointment where, again, despite its flaws, it best minimizes the corruption. I think that's where you and I are pretty much arguing that out of all of these ideas, life appointments in the Supreme Court justice system anyway at the federal level, that's the best way to go about it because, again, at least when it comes to your election aspect anyway, uh, they don't have to concern themselves with, again, worry about public pressure or anything like that. And if they don't have to worry about public pressure, then at that point they're truly independent. They're not trying to gain favor with the people or the government for that matter. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why Justice Chief Roberts <laughs> uh, – I guess we're going to be picking on him a little bit today – but um, – He's made some comments that even I don't necessarily agree with, and he made a comment as far as, or just kind of leads into the next point, as far as, well, if we're not going to do elections, then can we do at least term limits? And Justice Chief Roberts has actually come out and expressed the idea of term limits because at least it gives the Supreme Court more grounds to be in touch with reality, so along those lines from, you know, to paraphrase Justice Chief Roberts. But, again, based on what we've been talking about already, is that really the Supreme Court's job? Is, should they concern themselves as far as what's going on with the public, or should they just concern themselves with the law and how it fits into the Constitution and its original intent from the Founding Fathers? And again, another idea that many people seem to like is imposing at least term limits. Uh, I'm going to come out and say I don't, I don't agree with that either. I'll explain in just a second. But Ryan, I'm sure you probably don't agree with that either. Why do you think, why do you not agree with it? Even if, if someone had come to you and said, how come this is not a reasonable compromise, Ryan? Uh, why not? 
So I like to do what's called value-based negotiations and figure out like what is your value system so that we can reach a compromise that, you know, gives us our values rather than just focusing on, you know, tit for tat because you don't reach a good compromise that truly satisfies both parties if you don't if, if you do it that way, usually, most most scenarios. So the first thing I would do is, is I would ask, you know, well, why do you want term limits? Like, what is your goal? What, what are you trying to achieve? And I would say the most common uh, reason that I hear is because, you know, oh, it's a bunch of old white men justices who uh, don't represent us demographically or thought-wise. Right. And so I would, I, I guess... Comment below if there's another one, but that's really the only one that I hear for that. Um, and it's it's usually because they want fresh people on there, and by that they mean people who will be more judicially active. And really, it is. I it, it, if I boil it down to its root, uh, it it seems to me that it is always a matter of well, I don't like currently who's sitting on the Supreme Court, and I don't like the way they rule. So I have a problem with it. And the reason that I say that is because no one had a problem with nine white old men handing down Roe v. Wade. But we have a problem <laughs> when there is actually one of the most diverse panels we've had in a long time overturning it. So I think the issue is what happened, not the people who did it. And so I, I guess my first question would be, what, other than that, why, why do you want term limits? Because that really seems to be the reason why. And I disagree with the main and only reason I've heard the reason for term limits, because they want things to either have more quote unquote progress, which means what they want, right? We, we're not getting what we want, so we want to change it. Uh, right. Or uh, they want more people in there for the chance to change it. And that goes back to your earlier point, Ken, of, of what we don't want. We don't want ping pong. We don't want this volatile market uh, that just swings back and forth. The, the, the saying is the gears of justice grind slowly. Like it's supposed to be gradual change over time. And it's not that we can't change the system. I'm not opposed to change. But like you, I'm opposed to change for the sake of change. I think that there needs to be a reason beyond just I don't like the status quo. <laughs> That's a fine reason to get involved with it. But it doesn't mean you uproot the system and turn it over in my opinion and anyone who you know is more in favor of liberal justices will disagree with that and that's fine but again i would direct you back to why do you want term limits because yeah. let's think about let, let, just, just do a thought experiment with me for a moment let's say we impose term limits what do we gain uh in my opinion we wind up getting a a more turbulent market right like the judicial system is is more open to change which i think is a bad thing because it's change for the sake of change you also get people who are less experienced, right? We talked a little bit about the benefit of senators. And I was a little hesitant at times to, uh, you know, hedge them in with, not that I'm opposed to term limits, but the one thing that you do trade off is you don't get experience. Mm -hmm. Then to kind of spring off of that and go back to the first thing I said, why do we need like fresh blood experience, you know, relatable people? They're not making laws. Like Congress <laughs> should be hip. Congress should be replaced. The justices should be there to say, this is constitutional. This is not constitutional. You can do this. You cannot do this. Like that is so they don't need. I don't need. I don't I don't care if they are a queer, bisexual uh, little person. <laughs> I, I don't. I care whether or not they uphold um, the the Constitution because that's their one and only job. Now, for my congressperson, I do care whether or not they represent me. Now, for me, maybe I'm more interested in their values and the, the legislation they vote, like, fiscally. Like, maybe I'm really right. – it's important that we have small taxes, let's say. For someone else, they might be like, no, I want to see myself in this candidate, so then they vote based on demographics. That's fine. I don't see a reason um, – Again, to have diversity for the sake of diversity. Diversity is great. We need diversity. Again, nobody cut this out of context and sent it to CNN. <laughs> I am not saying we should not be diverse. I'm saying that if your only reason to be diverse is to be diverse, then I don't think that's a good enough reason for diversity. I think it, for the Supreme Court specifically. When you are getting diversity in the workplace, let's say, which I teach... That's incredibly important because different backgrounds bring together in the way that it is interpreted. And there is, you could make the argument that someone of a different background will see the Constitution differently. And if you go down that road, fine. That's a valid argument, like valid enough to make. We may, may or may not agree. That's fine. 
uh, depending on the way that you make that argument. But you can't just say they're old white men. You need to tell me here is where that is wrong, right? The old white men are still saying we should have, you know, people of color as slaves. Then I'm like, oh, okay, that's a right. If they're not, if you don't make another argument in addition to that, then I feel like there's not as strong of a reason for that. Like let's let's move beyond the 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 rut of they're old, they're white, they don't look like me. Let's talk about why that matters, and then we'll start having, I think, a more progressive conversation. Right? We'll make more progress between the sides, I think, if we talk about why that's necessary. Again, I'd ask, you know, what are your values? Like, what do you want to see come out of this? Let's approach it from there. Well, I'll go ahead. So let me go ahead and play as devil's advocate. And I'm going to actually kind of pretend to be on the other side for one second because I looked into it again. I try because I try to see like what would be like good logical reasons why would some, someone would want this. And to be fair, when the founding fathers wrote the Constitution, the average lifespan at the time was 38 years old. You didn't have like Supreme Court justice like uh, Chief Justice uh, Thomas, for example, Clarence Thomas, who's been on the bench for 30 years at the time. That was not the norm at the time. The average lifespan, or excuse me, the average amount of time the Supreme Court uh, justices normally spend up until like the last probably 50 years because of medicine improvements and life expectancy has grown is now it's used to be like 16 years at the most. So there used to be like a high turnover ratio already to an extent. That's at the same time, if you get rid of the life appointments, right? You, as you kind of alluded to a moment ago, you get rid of that continuity that's been established and you need that experience. And, and I would even, I would even say, what is the purpose of a life appointment the purpose of a life appointment was not you get to serve 16 years and then boom you're done high turnover rate the purpose of a life appointment was so that you had that security to vote whether or not something is constitutionally regardless of what people would think is popular right like that was a a big chunk of it it's not the only reason it was a big chunk so i would argue the principle remains the same whether you serve for 80 years or whether you serve for 5 like i don't care what the average life expectancy was and i don't think the founding fathers said all right the average life expectancy <laughs> is 5 years after this so yeah sure let's appoint them it was the premise that they get to serve that out so that they vote their conscience based off of their interpretation and experience of the law, which they would actually gain more experience over time. It was not about let's, you know, have high turnover and have it after X amount of years. So I would argue the, the life expectancy is not a factor here. It is, it, it just, it doesn't matter. The, well, that the will print, get into yeah. Go ahead. Well, that will get into the age limit that we'll get into in just a second, because that's another idea that's been floating around. But to add to your point anyway, real quickly, to the high turnover ratio anyway. So a lot of these uh, term limits, a lot of these ideas, since the average uh, denominator or the common denominator, excuse me, tends to be 18 years. So let's really think about this real quick. So basically... If you thought the confirmation process in the Senate was already agonizing enough the last four, <laughs> six years, right? Imagine having to, having to repeat this conversation every two or three years. That's true. And <laughs> imagine that would be the case. I bet, as a matter of fact, I bet the majority of Americans who support uh, any sort of term limits now, once they had to go through this, a lot of them would probably be wishing they go, went back to the life appointment. Where they didn't have these conversations. And the reason why we even have these com- – and honestly, the the matter of like having a Supreme Court justice being nominated to a Supreme Court bench is not going to be an issue every single election. It's only been an issue in the last two elections because of the fact we have so many that have been on the bench for a long time. And therefore, they, there's going to be a point of conversation as far as like, hey, we're going to have some open seats available soon. And the president may have to pick one or two justices. But that's not going to be the case. It's not going to be a relevant conversation every single election cycle. Now, if you have term limits like 18, like which is like the average uh, proposal, it's going to be every election cycle. It's going to be an actual issue where the, the president and the kind of justices he wants to appoint, that's going to be an issue every single election. And at that point, you really politicize the court at that point because now <laughs> essentially you're going to be voting not for the president by itself. You're also going to be voting for the judge and so judges who get appointed in the back of their mind 
they're going to be thinking before they even get to that point, at least at the federal level, let's say they work at the federal level already, they're going to be thinking, I have to rule just to gain some popular, just to gain some brownie points with the public. So they feel comfortable, uh, you know, with me being appointed if this president actually picks me for that seat. So you actually increased corruption by doing that. (laughs) Well, I, I would also say, like, let's trace back the issue to its root. The root of the issue is the senators and the president. Right. Like Mm if if um, it is the duty of the president to appoint, it is the duty of of the Senate to confirm. So if you don't like your speculation of what a president will nominate, then you should vote for your Senate elections in a way that reflects that. And like vice versa, like you should think beyond just, oh, this person's popular. You know, like we need to be looking at. Uh, Senate candidates in their totality and not just in, well, yeah, you're good enough. I, I know them like they're the incumbent or they're a Democrat or a Republican. Uh, we, we tend to see Republicans and Democrats vote in specific ways, but that's not always the case. And, you know, maybe maybe these sh- candidates should be pressed a little harder on, on the way that they vote in advance. Right. Because especially when you know, Mitch McConnell or Nancy, uh, Nancy Pelosi's in the <laughs> in the house. Uh, Chuck, Chuck Schumer. Schumer. Yeah, jinx. Uh, right. These people continue to run. We know how they're going to vote because they've been in there since, you know, <laughs> our great grandparents were in the womb. Uh, but, you know, even maybe when you're looking at a new candidate, like maybe that, those are questions that could be asked at the you know press conferences they hold and stuff when or the rallies or whatever when they're when they're running like I feel like there's there's things we could do to to eliminate what we're saying is the the heart of the issue and not just like a cosmetic band aid because I feel like that's where we're at now is we're slapping a band aid out right let's let's do another election let's do a you know uh, a temperature check of how we feel these these uh, ju- justices are doing. It's not let's talk about the importance of the president when they're, you know, nominating or right. the the Senate when they're confirming. And I feel honestly, I feel like, you know, the president and the uh, congressional members here skirt their responsibility because like what we need to do is pack the courts. Well, you're the ones who put them in there. You know what I mean? Like I feel like it's it's just uh, I don't know if you. So, for example, if Democrats hold enough of a majority to pack the courts, let's say, then depending on the exact timeline, then they'd also have, you know, the votes that they need to deny or confirm like that. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, I I know they're trying to do that retrospectively, but I feel like they, they focus on it's, it's like the magician. You focus on what Congress wants you to focus on because they're like, well, here's the problem, whether it be the Republicans are the problem, the Democrats are the problem, or, you know, it's, it's about, we don't have the votes to pack the court. Yeah, it's it, they're they're always looking at what is the the thing I can rally my voters behind. They never like what is the last thing Democrats said since they're in control right now. I am going to pick on them. What's the last thing they said was a giant win that people thought was a win because recently it was going to be the college forgiveness uh, or the the student loan forgiveness. But you've also had a split because the way that it's done, you've got people who are like, well, now I'm paying taxes on something. So uh, it it is always about let's get on the next thing. Right. It's always about let's let's look at the next issue. I can unite my voting base and maybe a few others behind. We don't address Mm -hmm. the key issues. So I, I, I think all that to be said, one of the key issues here is the Senate is not representing you properly or enough people don't care. Or you kind of got SOL in, you know, the timeline break to who was in power and some things we can't control. But uh, take control of what you can. I feel like people don't care about midterm elections as much as they should. Everybody votes for the president. Uh, People don't care about their school board or their local elections. You know, like there's a lot of things that we can get involved in governmentally that affect us a lot. Mm Mm-hmm. I want to take us on too much of a tangent, so I'll stop there. (laughs) (laughs) You're good. And one thing to kind of point back, pivot back to a point you made earlier as far as the age making being a factor with the founding fathers. I mean, the founding fathers didn't really care about, they weren't concerned about the how old someone can be. They were more concerned about the maturity, right? Were were these people mature enough to even be in this position? That's why you have like an age limit as far as uh, when someone can become senator, when someone can become House of Representative, and also president. And 
judicial, be a Supreme Court or a judge. So they weren't concerned about that. But there is, I guess, an argument to be made to have maximum age limits. I would still say no. And here's why I would say no. Mainly because when it comes so I guess the main concern with is like, let's say someone Joe Biden's age serve at the Supreme Court, right? And they have and they behave like Joe Biden is right now. You would not feel confident in having that person up there serving the Supreme Court bench. So you would think, okay, why don't we post some sort of you know maximum age limit? But the problem I see with that is when it comes to cognitive decline. And your cognitive ability in general when it comes to age, it's so subjective, right? Like there's really no universal standard that states, you know what, at the age of 70, that, that is guaranteed when you're starting to go down decline cognitively. So let's go ahead and make the maximum age limit to 70. If someone is 90 years old and they can actually t- do their job, I mean, they're sitting inside AC, yep. indoors, at, you know, sitting down, like how – it's not like they're going out like shoveling snow at the parking lots. Like, do you really need? Is that really concern? To me, it's not really concern. Um, but go ahead. I was going to say it's not concerning to me in a way where I would want to have the government limiting it. Uh, I think that that falls to the individuals, right? Mm-hmm. I, I think so. And, and this, I think, the most recent example of this would be RBG. She wanted to hold on through President Obama's term. Because everyone was assuming Hillary Clinton was going to win, including her. And yeah. like the idea was Hillary Clinton will appoint her successor. Well, that didn't happen. Uh, and so that she was trying to hold on through the end of the Trump presidency. And then that didn't happen. So I think that that can be an example of justices need to feel out when do they need to retire. And they can do so strategically so that a president that they feel will replace them with a successor that will accurately reflect their present state. Uh, that might be something they want to assess. It also might be that they're like, well, yeah, I'm no longer you know, capable or I just don't want to do this. Right. I really think that that should be on them because I don't, th- in my mind, you know, RBG seems sharp till the end. Uh, Scalia seems sharp till the end. Like it seems like I have not, I don't have an example to bring of a Supreme Court justice that didn't retire or pass away before they were incapable of passing good judgment in the way that they had. Now I disagreed with a lot of what RBG passed and wrote. That doesn't mean that she wasn't a landmark, right? A historical figure who was very sharp. And understood the law and interpreted it, she did more judicial activism throughout her mm-hmm. career. That was just the way that she was. And while I disagree with that, it's I don't think we've seen a Joe Biden where it's like, you know, you, you need to give them a note card so that they can get through their meeting. We don't we don't have that yet. So I don't think that we in this case or the government at large needs to limit that. In my opinion, that that's my stance right now. So this is where I think you and I are going to defer just a little bit because I'm willing to compromise in this sense. Like I, like I think perhaps in case that were to happen, the pivot back to your point as far as like leading it to responsibility of Congress, right? What if we gave Congress a power, basically like the same kind of like the equivalent of the 25th Amendment when the president is now when we decide the president cannot serve because of health reasons per se. What if, Cong- what if we apply that to Supreme Court justices, perhaps, when it comes to cognitive decline? What you're asking for <laughs> is a Democrat-controlled Senate removing a conservative justice they dislike or a Republican-controlled Senate removing a liberal justice they dislike, and you've given them the legal power to do so. I'm not at all in favor of that. In fact, the 25th Amendment... Um, I don't know that I'm in favor of that. Um, that that might really? be a con- it depends on the parameters and how it's executed, but just giving a, a collective, I think it's even just a simple majority. It might be the whole cabinet has to agree. I don't remember the specifics, but I just, I don't, I don't like so, right. that level of a, I mean, I understand it's designed to be a check 
And when that was written, I'm pretty sure it was specific for a president. I don't remember which one. I think one. it was either Woodrow Wilson or FDR. I think that's what it, I think it was Woodrow Wilson because if I'm not mistaken, Woodrow Wilson's wife, I think it was his wife, was the one who was, you know, the conspiracy theorist. Like she was like the shadow president, right? Like she was running all of his meetings and everything right up in the end because he had like the strokes and stuff like that. So I feel like there's a purpose for it. But the way that things get weaponized now, I don't like it. At all. I don't like even the possibility of that being the case. I mean, what if we made it to where it's like a supermajority in the Senate, you know, the filibuster basically, and then as a check of balance, and then as far as the House, simple majority, but you had to at least get the two thirds approval from the Senate. Again, um, I understand where you're coming from on that, but my answer would still be no because Democrats are threatening to blow up the filibuster. So all it takes is this: it was a, a, their vote at one point, like well, that. That's to be why. fair. To be fair, like let's go off of like our. To be fair, based on our ratification process so far, based on what we have, we've decided that the filibuster, at least for the most part, would still be intact, be permanent, except for budget reconciliation purposes. So would you still? Be uncomfortable with that proposal or? Yes, because um, I'm seeing where the political landscape has shifted now in the last, you know, 250 years. And now it is we've got people who are getting into office and they're gradually like they're 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 right at the cusp of getting, you know, at least a simple majority. Uh, and we'll see how midterms, if that becomes solidified or if they get turned out and the people reject this. But you're seeing a gradual growth. And you're seeing people who are not being and they're being voted in by people who don't pay attention to civics, who don't understand the the purpose of the three branches. And so they're like, yeah, why do we need a filibuster? Boom. Let me put someone in there who's going to blow that up so I get my end goal. And so because that makes my intent here vulnerable, I don't want to make that the case. Does that make sense? Like I'm seeing now yeah. that if there's an opportunity for Congress to overturn it, they will. Because basically you're saying... Here's the keys to the to the I was going to say the car, but let's go begin that. Here's the keys to the nuclear weapon hanging right here. You can't touch them right now. And you say it to this small, immature little child, but they grow up. Right. And then they're able to reach. them. that's not necessarily a great analogy. But like Congress is basically seeing here is the power. I just need to get enough votes to reach it, and then I get what I want because it's then set up in a way currently Congress gets to overturn a filibuster-proof majority, which then gives them more power, which then gives them more power. And so they're actually able to almost – I would call it reification. Like they get to, to lean into – like Congress gets to set the standard and change the standard, and then they get to do it again, and they just kind of – once they've – so for example, just to put this in simple terms – Congress's thing was, we're going to blow up the filibuster, and then we're going to add D.C. and uh, Puerto Rico as two states, which gives us, they would be both Democratic appointed, which gives us a plus two majority. And since we destroyed the filibuster, so now it's just a simple majority, we can then change everything we want. That's what they're trying to do. So I, I oppose it for that very, just even just that example in and of itself. I see. Well, I can see why... You come, it seems like it's just too much. It's just too subjective, anyway. These proposals, basically, and yeah. If yeah, and if we're going to come up with proposals and make some changes, it has to have like an actual decent, objective measure check and balance. Yep. If you're going to have, for, and that kind of creates more problems when you create changes that will lead. It's based more on subjective matters, um, which. I mean, that's really the job of Congress and the president. That's more subjective manners than judicial branch. It defeats the purpose of the judicial branch. It should be more of an objective. Judicial branch, I guess, in theory, is an objective branch uh, versus Congress. They're subjective. Yeah, air quote. But in theory, anyway, the way our system is set up, they're supposed to be independent. They're supposed to be objective in how they interpret the law and stuff like that. They're concerned themselves with anything versus Congress. You know, they make policies based on their values and, you know, all of that is subjective. Same with the president. That's all subjective based on his ideas, what, is power, what he can do as president and what his values are as an American, as an individual. Yep. But the values that judicial brands need to concern themselves with is how they interpret the Constitution. And I guess, yeah, okay. I thought it was a good compromise I came up with earlier. <laughs> well, like, yeah, I, and, talking, uh, out, talking out loud to myself like you did last week, like I'm more, now I'm against it, my own proposal <laughs> compromises. Well, and, <laughs> and 
I, I, I understand where you're coming from with that. Like from, from that perspective, unless you, you mitigate it with what I brought up, you know, and, and, and you, you or others might not, that might not be a big deal to me. It is. That's why I wouldn't really want to compromise on that part of it. But I mean, it's, it's still important to, to, you know, go through and, and this is why we do this. It's not this, this segment is not so much a debate like, you know, between the liars usually is, but it, it does let us go through and, and discuss these concepts I mean, mm-hmm. and they're and they're really important. I I would like to add that it's there's this direct tie between the founding fathers setting the the Senate as the confirmation of the appointment and their original intent pre seventeenth amendment, where those were appointed by the governor and those or you know, well the the state legislators which were supposed to be more directly represented to the people because then it was more closely tied to this concept of the people elect the legislators which elect the senators which elect which confirm the the judicial branch it was supposed to be like a one two three stack right up so that you were quote unquote represented accurately and now with the populist votes, it's shifted that slightly. We can talk about whether that's good or bad, but it has shifted it nonetheless. And I think that that's just really fascinating how even just changing one thing, like how we appoint or how elect, in this case, senators, mm-hmm. that changes the dynamics, maybe even corrupting the system, depending on the stance that you take there. I mean, last week we decided that we're better off just repealing the 17th Amendment because we thought it, it, caused, it has caused more problems than good at this point. And personally, I would say maybe that would help people feel a little bit more represented. And like, you know, and the other thing is, I think that part of the populist vote is we like to retain control. This I'm not saying this is everyone's motivation. I'm saying that this could be a factor to consider. If I'm distrusting of the government, why would I want, you know, the state legislators to be, you know, appointing my senator, I want that direct vote. The other part of that might be that we often has a, have a misconception as a nation that we are a democracy. We're not a democracy. We're a representative republic. You're supposed to have someone voting to vote to vote. Like that, that, that was the purpose of that, at least in part of the government. So between those two things, I feel like that might be you know why we've shifted away to an extent. It's not all of it, but a good, a good reason. I also think you pay a hell of a lot more of attention in your state legislator elections, instead of just being like, eh, it doesn't matter. Uh, because <laughs> if you know that influences your your state senator elect, uh, election, which then influences Supreme Court appointment, I think we take a lot more active role in local government. Mm-hmm. No, I think the way the system is set up was supposed to be, we weren't supposed to care about the federal government so much as much as what's going on in local politics. Yeah. That was the original intent and original design. Yeah. Um, but as the years have gone by, the federal power has increased, so the interests of local politics decreased. And that, like I said, and I've said a couple of times, it wasn't until the last recent years where local politics, there's been more emphasis anyway in local politics and state politics than there has been in the past because a lot of people are realizing that's where, that's where the tangible change actually yeah. does take place. Um, but I think you now have reached a concluding point for today. Uh, like we said, there, was, there wasn't going to be much we disagreed on. Uh, I don't think you did. You have, did you even have to take notes to today's episode? Not really. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I I had one last thought I wanted to add on the okay. Um, Congress. We, we talked about how their job is to uphold or strike down. Off of that, it's important to remember that Congress actually has no enforcement power. So the the like one of the the key moments that I think of here was when the Supreme Court told Andrew Jackson, yeah, you can't just evict Native Americans from their land and take it for a quote unquote good, you know, whatever he was justifying it as. And he literally said, the Supreme Court has made their decision. Let's see them enforce it. Like as long as the people don't go along with the ruling or the government doesn't go along with the ruling is culturally enforced. So, and, and just to give a practical example, the Supreme Court struck down Bruin, which said that uh, the state of New York's handgun bans effectively, uh, you know, like you, you, they're a, a short version, they were choosing to not give people who should be allowed to conceal carry a concealed carry permit because they didn't quote unquote give a good enough reason to carry. And it's like, and the Supreme court said, constitution says you don't need to give that reason. They're not in violation of any laws. They're not criminals. They can carry. If 
the state of New York said the Supreme Court has made their decision. Let's see them enforce it. Nothing would change. So on that note, think about the fact that the Supreme Court's power is not unlimited. I know we talked about how there's a lot of control, but if the people or the government don't go with it, there is technically no enforcement power there that I'm aware of. And that will get us into the executive branch, which it seems like we'll be getting into that sooner rather than later. Uh, <laughs> next week, we'll actually be going through the packing of the court because I think that's probably where the biggest change is needed just to protect continuity more than anything as a foreshadow. Sure. Um, but to kind of go off of what you just said, you're right. I mean, when it came to like the end, what was I think it was like board versus the Brown of education, I think, where the Supreme Court said, hey, you have to let uh, the African-American community like integrate with these other schools and colleges and universities. Like it was President Eisenhower that sent the National Guard to Alabama, I think it was, or Mississippi. I want to say it was Montgomery, Alabama, but I could be. It was Alabama. I think it was Alabama. And he actually, because the Alabama governor at the time was going, what you were saying, like, I'm not enforcing this. Like, I'm not going to go ahead and go along with this. But President Eisenhower, a Republican, by the way, sent the National Guard and (laughs) said, no, we're going to enforce the Supreme Court ruling that states you cannot segregate people based on the color of their skin or their ethnicity whatsoever. Yep. So. It gets into the conversation, which really, at that point, your quarrel has to be not with the judicial branch. It has to be with the executive branch, the president, which, unfortunately, it seems like the common denominator that I'm noticing in this conversation, that the judicial branch seems to be like the scapegoat for the other two <laughs> branches of government when they're just an independent branch and they're just trying to interpret the Constitution as is. And, Grant, we've discussed as far as, like, the flaws with it and some of the mistakes they've made in the past, and, you know, we didn't, we're not going to always agree with it, but... Is our own sentiments good enough to have an actual change in the, how they function? And we both argue, would argue no. But we would argue that the changes need to be made is from the executive branch and the legislative branch. Those are the where we should take our energy and focus where the changes are needed to take place anyway. So the executive branch, we'll be getting into that, I guess, not next week, but the week after that. So... That'll be a much more fruitful conversation because uh, there's a lot more nuances to discuss in that one. <laughs> Hope you all enjoyed. Again, please hit the like button, subscribe, notification bell, whether you're on YouTube or even on Twitch. I'm not sure how Twitch works, but <laughs> hit the like button on Twitch. Share this with your friends and family members. <laughs> uh, Rumble, if you're, on, if you're on my channel, Rumble, please hit the like button or the Rumble button by all means and share this with family, friends and family members. Uh, check out Ryan's social media page. Check out my social media page. It'll be in the description below. And Ryan, go ahead and finish up for us if you don't mind. <laughs> sure, can do, can. Uh, remember, you can find us on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, Twitch, and Google Podcasts. Follow us on our social medias to stay updated at Kenjin underscore Express and at Between the Liars. We post a lot of updates on all of those, honestly. Uh, and if you enjoyed this show, give us a five-star review and share us with your friends. And like Ken said, I can't say this enough. Subscribe, smash the like button, and uh, yeah, give give some love to both of our channels. Help us envision a smaller, better, more accountable government, and that starts with a blueprint. Goodbye for now. <laughs>